Hi, and welcome to the Grant Thornton Risk and Regulation Unraveled podcast. This is our monthly review of developments in the world of financial services regulation. Uh, as usual, I'm David Moy, and I'm joined by my colleague, Ben Farmer. Say hello, Ben. Hello. We've got some major developments going on in the motor finance sector and, and, and the regulatory response to certain shenanigans, I think is the word you, you used earlier. Uh, <laughs> would, you like to, would you like to tell us what's going on there, Ben? Yeah, certainly. So for those who aren't necessarily close to the history on this, in the past, when people purchased cars and took out finance to buy them, some of the finance was arranged under things called discretionary commission arrangements. So these were agreements between uh, lenders and credit brokers that basically granted brokers the ability to adjust the interest rates offered to customers. And the issue was that the broker's commission was obviously was often tied to the interest rate, which clearly then gave the brokers something of an incentive to raise interest rates where possible. And in practice, for the motor finance industry, many of these brokers that we talk about were actually the car dealers who were selling people the car at the same time. Uh, so the FCA banned these discretionary commission arrangements back in 2021 to try and remove this adverse incentive. However, even since then, finance providers have still continued to receive a high volume of complaints about loans entered into prior to the ban. Uh, and some of those complaints have had compensation claims attached to them for what people feel has been unfair commission that they've ended up having to pay for. And basically, a number of those complaints have got to FOS, and the first FOS decisions have started to emerge now. And a number of them are starting to emerge in favour of customers. So you, you referenced, is this a second PPI? The, the FCA is clearly anticipating that it could be something in a similar vein. It's definitely anticipating a significant increase in customer complaints to firms and the FOS. Uh, so the FCA has launched two interventions on this point. Uh, the first of these is it's using its Section 166 powers to point a skilled person review to look at the historical sales of motor finance agreements involving discretionary commission arrangements. Uh, I think initially we understand that review is going to cover around about 10 motor finance providers. Mm -hmm. uh, so that'll obviously look at the historic practices, whether there's any evidence of wide scale customer detriment or not. So is that, is that a kind of, yeah, how, how big's the problem type of review, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it's a how how prevalent is the problem and yeah. how severe is any customer harm that can be attributed right. to it. Yeah, yeah. Depending on what that finds, the FCA may or may not act further. In particular, it might commission a consume, an industry-wide consumer redress scheme under Section 404 of the Financial mm -hmm. Service and Markets Act, Mm -hmm. uh, which clearly, if it does, that's no small undertaking with no small amount of knock-on impact. Mm -hmm. um, FCA aiming to communicate a decision on that by the end of September this year. Uh, they've also taken another more immediate step. This is designed to uh, allow firms to deal with the anticipated complaints volume in an orderly manner. So for which they've issued one of their, what I always think of as rare, but they seem to be increasingly common, uh, policy statements issued without any consultation. Oh, yes with new rules in it that are effective immediately. Yes. Um, the, the main focus of which is they are pausing the eight week deadline for motor finance firms to provide a final response to relevant customer complaints. So that's complaints about these discretionary commission arrangements. Uh, that requirement's initially paused for a period of 37 weeks, so about nine months. That's basically to give the FCA time to complete its skilled person okay. diagnostic work and, and work out what's next. Uh, and and similarly, FOS referral deadlines for consumers are being extended at, at a similar time. Yeah, interesting. 
Uh, yes. Okay. So, so in theory, that that intervention on complaints gives them time to decide whether they want to do an industry-wide yeah. exercise. Um, and I, and I guess if they do, then um, it, there's a uh, there's various cho choices that might emerge in the design of that. So you know, it, it could be responsive to customer complaints, in which case I expect the the, the claims management companies will be running around. Um, uh, try to drum up, uh, drum up those, uh, or, or I suppose it could be as as the last four hundred four scheme, which is on pension transfers, um, pension transfer advice. It, it could be a, a, you know just just review everything and compensate regardless of whether there's been a, a customer complaint or not. Um, I guess time will tell on that on that on that front. But um, yes, yeah, certainly market comment seems to be this. This could be PPR on wheels, um, and the the same kind of numbers. Um, I mean, it could apply to certainly, you know, the eligible contracts. Think about the number of motor finance got. These are, are in the millions, and I know, I know they they're looking back to like 2007, I believe, as a, a sort of practices since since that point in time. So you've got uh, the best part of 20 years worth of certainly 15 or 16 years worth of of, uh, of, of motor finance agreements that are potentially in scope. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, presumably with your with with one sort of Twin Peaks hat on, there's. At that sort of scale, there's going to be a point at which the other regulator, you'd assume, is going to sit up quite sharply and start taking interest in this, which, I mean, I would assume they're already talking to each other about this, not just that's probably not public yet, but... I'm sure they will. It's interesting, I've forgotten now, but early on in the PPI process, there was a, the regulator was taken to court, um, essentially, uh, uh, well, we don't need to replay the grounds, but the ch challenging as to whether or not it was it was acting beyond its um authority and demanding um banks in that case uh review and remediate um and um yeah I, I, you wonder given the scale of this whether 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 there might be some legal challenge down the track if nothing else on, on those dates because of course you know the regulator did not get supervisory powers over consumer finance till 2014 i think it was 2013 2014 um and they're looking back you know to 20 2007 here they, as you say, they actually banned the FCA banned the um, practice of discretionary commissions in 2021. So they did. I think the argument would be they did a review at that point and decided the right remedy was to ban the practice moving forward. But they didn't decide at that point that you know it was so bad that it needed a retrospective exercise. Um, I, I'm not saying I agree with that actually, but but that's that's certainly that's certainly certainly one of the lines of argument that that that, that, I, that I've heard. So. Uh, yeah, I think this is this is big enough that it wouldn't surprise me if there's a uh, some legal challenge at some point to the to the process. No, no, well, it, it potentially goes slightly wider than just the FCA handbook of compliance there with, doesn't it? I mean, I've had a, a very quick look over a couple of the post decisions, and they are they are referencing FCA rules, but they are also referencing you know common law principles about unfair contract terms. Right. In a way that for anyone who's looked at PPI and and the Plevin ruling and stuff will sound very right. very familiar. Um, and and it's not the only kind of motor sector thing under scrutiny at the moment either because gap insurance is is also currently being mm. quite heavily scrutinized from both directions both from the distribution angle of commissions and are people actually earning them and also from the kind of product provider angle of the amount of claims being paid and whether the product actually provides value yes so it's a, yeah but interesting times for those in, it is yeah, in no, that no, adjacent to it it's it's a good point you know even even absent i guess now even absent of 404 industry-wide redress scheme there's going to be an avalanche of com complaints and as you say for the, the way FOS is interpreting those is 
is in a way that you know it's hard to imagine avoiding significant compensation um yeah yeah interesting times uh, uh, well it's, it's certainly as, as somebody who signed a few of those agreements in their t- in, their, in, in their time um um yeah it'll be interesting to see how it plays out i think a huge number of people will have a, a personal interest in, in that as well as a professional one um undoubtedly um i know it'll take a little while but I, you know it's 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 only early february but it's hard to imagine a bigger regulatory intervention in the in the coming year maybe we'll be surprised actually we'll come we'll, we'll talk a bit later about you know a bit more, more forward-looking uh, uh aspects given given we've got some uh a likely changing government but um but yes it's hard it's hard to imagine there'll be anything any individual intervention bigger than this in 2024 famous last words those okay <laughs> let's uh I'll, I'll, let's move on i'll, I'll just summarize a, 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 a not as big a regulatory intervention albeit um uh, interesting in, in its own way so um for those that that might not have noticed, a couple of days ago, late January, uh, the uh, the government uh, made a, an equivalence determination. Yes, the, the equivalence—that's the thing we used to talk about back in the back in the uh, pre-Brexit days. But but uh, we we still have that uh, power within UK law, and they made an equivalence determination in relation to the European Union and, and European Economic Area use its funds regime, um, which um, means that those funds many of which are marketed in the UK you know a huge number use its funds that are available to buy for retail investors in the UK are uh, domiciled in places like Ireland and and Luxembourg in particular um but but, but means that all, all those funds are going to have to move into a new regulatory regime which is a, a separate rules consultation that's, that's ongoing um it, it essentially will bring to an end what's known as the temporary marketing permissions regime, but basically, basically that allowed in a post-Brexit, any fund that's already been marketed in the UK could continue to be marketed in the UK. No extra requirements really applied. Um, the new rules essentially are going to require all funds, including obviously new ones, but any existing fund will be given a landing slot between now and the end of 2026 when it will have to apply for registration. And And it is a it is an application that can be turned down. There are a few tweaks to it which make it a less favourable regime for EU funds. So it will make them, you know, on the face of it, a bit harder to market in the UK. Things like uh, things like they they now to now need to um, make very clear in their literature that they you know they're not UK funds. They are not therefore subject to the financial services compensation scheme. That that they, they, there is no right of complaint to the financial ombudsman. Those need to be sort of major health warnings um but there's also requirements that any uk financial promotion needs to be signed off by a uk authorized person there needs to be a uk representative that is able to uh, buy and sell units in that fund which is likely to be a regulated activity those those last two things you know make it make it harder i think to distribute eu funds unless you have a uk authorized entity that is um, the umbrella for them um and you know a lot of Funds houses do have UK authorised entity, and we'll be able to to, to read through that. But but uh, any anyone that doesn't is is, is probably going to um, be under some pressure to to create one. So so yeah, it's um it's it's an interesting moving dynamic. I guess post Brexit, it's changing the changing the shape of funds distribution um, into the UK. Um, it will be interesting to see how the markets so overseas um, funds uh, adapt to it. Um, and whether we potentially 
um, see a see a see a, a, a flow towards more funds being domiciled in the UK, um, um, and with this being one factor in that in that move. Um, the, the other international agreement point, which is uh, just worth a quick note, maybe, um, is the Bern Financial Services Agreement, um, is the mutual recognition agreement between the UK and Switzerland. Um, so this is uh, being billed as, and, and I haven't, you know, got Wikipedia up to actually check whether this is the case or not. But I, the, 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 it's being billed as the the first ever um, financial services focused free trade or free uh, trade agreement, um, and it's intended to make it easier for, for for Swiss Swiss and UK financial services firms to operate in each other's markets. It's not so okay. So so it's um, it needs to be ratified by local parliaments in, in Switzerland. That means a referendum as well. Um, it will need uh, then to be um, uh, transposed into the SEA handbook, into the FINMA rulebook, etc. So, so it's going to, it will take a while to have, m make a meaningful difference, but um, it, it does make it easier in a few areas. I think the uh, you know the wins for uh, both sides are probably better, easier access for brokers, intermediaries, financial advisors into each other's markets. Um, you know, the, there's mutual recognition of central counterparties, which probably helps the UK. Um, it, uh, there's better access for UK insurers into Switzerland, so they can, you know, on the, on the face of it, should be able to write insurance in Switzerland without having a, a Swiss a Swiss entity. Um, the big one for Switzerland is, yeah, Swiss wealth managers will have easier access to UK professional clients. So it's not, I mean, it's not a life changing, um, a life changing range. It's certainly not close to a sort of European start union style <clears throat> single market but but it's a it's a, it's it's a first at least so uh so we'll see whether that's deemed to be a success in the future it's, a, it's an interesting signal of intent at least isn't it because it's been a lot of the free trade agreements so far very much focused on you know trade of commodities yeah. items Goods and, so. yeah 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 no i know i know i know it's um um uh it's uh Interesting uh, 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 because the Swiss system is such that they have to have a national referendum on this as well, which is uh, <coughs> is uh, is just a sign of how the different democracies operate. Um, so anyone anyone going on holiday to Switzerland and foreseeable behave yourselves. Don't don't make them hate us. That, that's that's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, I think I think that probably includes our, our producer actually. So uh, let's see if um, let's see if um, um, she can behave herself on the slopes. Anyway, moving on. The um, uh, uh, what else have we seen? It's, it's not been the busiest month in terms of new publications. I don't think certainly not 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 compared to some, but but we have seen a few things, haven't we, Ben? Particularly at the PRA. Yes. So beginning with they've issued some sector priority letters. So basically, they've written to the insurance sector, international banks, and UK deposit takers, basically setting out his our view of what we'll be focusing on from a supervision perspective throughout the year, and in turn, therefore, what we think you as firms should be paying particular attention to. Um, so starting with the international banks letter, I think the the overall flow of this is is the gist is basically expect tough economic times to persist for a bit longer. That clearly brings with it more financial risk. Therefore, we'll be focused. We want firms to focus on their financial resilience and their risk management frameworks and controls. Uh, things that it particularly highlights there are counterparty credit risk, as clearly tougher economic times. The greater risk there is that anyone else you're doing business with could fall over and go bankrupt. Uh, secured financing risks and also exposure to non-bank financial institutions. Uh, operational resilience, you probably won't be surprised to hear is in all three of these letters. 
uh, with a reminder that firms only have until March 2025 to show that they can keep their important business services within the impact tolerances they've set. And, and therefore, the, the PRA making it very clear that firms should be well into working on their kind of scenario testing by now to, to test and evidence that they are actually able to keep within those tolerances. Uh, and, and also data risk is highlighted here, which is not so much from the looks of it data in the cybersecurity sense, but actually in the regulatory reporting sense. Right. Uh, PRA making a point that uh, obviously timely and accurate regulatory data for them is a very important part of them doing their jobs effectively. And that they've done a lot of skilled person work recently in this area, which they say has repeatedly identified deficiencies in controls over data governance, data governance and systems. And sort of re reminding firms to keep paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. uh, for UK deposit takers, to be honest, the letters mostly very similar to the one for international banks. Credit risk, financial resilience, operational resilience, data risk, all in there, all much the same wording. Uh, and then there's also a mention of the model risk management principles, which come into effect yes. on the 17th of May. <clears throat> Uh, and, and a brief mention on the financial risks associated with climate change and resolution recovery and the resolvability assessment framework. So that's that's what the banks are being told to focus on. Uh, the insurance space is not hugely dissimilar. Again, big focus on credit risk, uh, credit markets. The PRA thinks are exposed to a subdued outlook for economic growth, inflationary cost pressures, and so on. Uh, therefore. They say that this year they're going to continue to focus on the uh, the efficacy of firms' credit risk management capabilities, uh, particularly given that they think firms are going to aim to continue to invest in a wider range of assets with credit risk. Uh, similarly, liquidity risk, the PRA still remembers the recent impacts of the dash for cash that occurred during the pandemic and obviously the LDI uh, fiasco. That's not a very neutral. I was reaching for a more neutral word and I couldn't come LDI, up with uh... Incidents? Yeah, 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 turbulence, turbulence. Turbulence, that's a good word, yes. I like that. The LDI turbulence. <laughs> um, and so the PRA is going to be doing an exploratory system-wide exercise at some point this year to explore how the insurance company's actions during a stressed market condition would interact with what other financial institutions are doing at the same time. And obviously consider whether that then causes knock-ons that have nasty implications for the wider economic system. Uh, there'll be life and GI stress tests, mm. uh, a couple of sector specific bits. So the life sector, they particularly call out, they've got some concerns around funded reinsurance. Mm -hmm. So they don't want life insurance placing an over-reliance on that. They see it as being yeah. just one part of a diversified yeah. asset management strategy. I think there's a risk concentration concern. Yeah, yeah basically, absolutely. Uh, the general insurance, it's cyber underwriting risk, claims inflation, uh, and model drift, so basically yeah. making sure that internal models have kept up with uh, other economic developments and haven't become inaccurately optimistic. Yeah. And then there's there's a few other briefly mentioned areas, one of which, David, I think you've been looking at in more depth because I think there's also a CP out on it, which is around the orderly exit arrangements. Yeah, that's right. The uh, so PIO issued a, a consultation paper, solvent solvent exit planning for insurers, uh, both both life and general um i it's, i'm essentially trying to raise the game around the planning for and the operability of uh decisions by insurers to exit um the uk market to wind down to use that other terminology 
um but but not in a you know excessively stressed way for instance but but in a but in a uh, just just as a as a sort of commercial or strategic um decision um and this consultation essentially sets out new rules uh i mean the, the first step is that every insurer and, and it does make the distinction here between solvency two insurers which probably will will have or should have much of this already in place versus versus non-solvency two so yeah arguably the biggest impact is, is on is on those non-solvency two insurers but the um the, the first step is to produce what they're terming a solvent exit analysis uh, which will include things like a you know a broad broad strategy for making a solvent exit and and the kind of um, indicators or trigger points that might suggest it's it's becoming more likely than not um, and and actually that that then the, those triggers feed into the second step which is uh, I think the phraseology is once it becomes a reasonable prospect that uh, that a solvent exit could be required then a full blown solvent exit execution plan try 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 saying that at speed um needs to be needs to be prepared which is a you know the the full detailed playbook on how to undertake undertake uh, this exercise the project plan as, as essentially which is obviously a, a big additional step at that point um uh yeah so uh come into effect end of 2025 would be the if the consultation and and, and final rules um um follow the timetable they're discussing um i just i did take a note the the cost benefit analysis suggests that the average cost of, of it implementing this requirement per insurance company is seventeen thousand pounds as a sort of upfront cost of compliance i'm thinking uh, that was the you other know, basically staff time for seventeen thousand pounds i thought that that seems interesting maybe maybe that optimistic I don't, I don't i don't i don't know i don't know um uh, maybe maybe my view of how detailed these these this analysis and these plans uh need to be is is different to to, to where the poa are but but uh, there's also just uh, an amusing irony isn't there in firms saying it or in regulators saying here's the cash you need to set aside for the plan for when you run out of cash yeah <laughs> <laughs> and to be to be fair, this this is not necessarily the plan when you've run out of cash. This is the plan well, when you've just great. decided um, you, uh, you, uh, you 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 could you could stick around, but you you strategically you you've decided not to. Uh, which is a you know and and that the, the, the PRA here being driven by that that this is this is a real life experience. This is this is something that has, has happened from time to time. So wanting a bit more formality around around the planning for that is is, is sensible, I think. Um, the the other they work out a couple of bits and bobs from the PRA we can rattle off. I mean, one was they they've done they've done their own review of the ring fencing regime, like two years after or a year, year and a half after the ski off independent review. The PRA have done their own internal review, consulted with banks. Um, the uh, conclusion is uh, uh, most rules are performing satisfactorily. No significant gaps have been identified. So essentially not much is going to change is what they're saying. Minor recommendations about cleaning up the rule book. There's, there's some overlap between like, the ring fencing rules on operational resilience and the, the other parts of the rule book that deal with the same thing. So they, they can kind of streamline it a bit. But um, uh, but but essentially oh, and one one regulatory return out of, out of many can, is, is, is going to be is going to be shelved. Um, According to this independent review, they'll have to bring forth you know, specific proposals on that. But 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 essentially, it's a it's a nothing to see here. No no change required. I was reading some of the um the, the consultation feedback the banks have provided, and uh, and it seemed very clear that they they don't want things to change. Uh, I, my 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 irreverent sense of what they were saying was that we spent millions and millions to implement this damn regime. Please don't change it. <laughs> Please don't change it now. 
spend millions and millions um, uh, dealing with that. So, so, uh, so yes, nothing really to see there. Um, uh, a bit more interesting, maybe is the, the HSB, uh, the PRA fined HSBC, didn't they? Um, they did. Um, and in fact, they fined them £57 million, which is the second highest fine the PRA's ever issued. So they're definitely not messing about with this one. Um, mm. In fact, they do make a point in their final notes of saying this is a deliberately big fine to show how seriously we take this issue. Uh, the, the issue in question being deposit protection, identification and notification. So doing my best to explain this for non-banking people like myself, whilst also not getting too technical. Uh, obviously, the Financial Services Compensation Scheme protects a certain amount of uh, banking deposits. Yeah. And so firms have to mark all the accounts that are eligible for FSCS protection and have to complete a single customer review or SCV, yeah. which is basically a big report that provides all the information that FSCS would need access to in a resolution scenario where they're stepping in. Uh, since 2010, there's also been a requirement for deposit takers to produce a report annually on their SCV systems, which needs to be accompanied by a statement signed on behalf of the firm's governing body. So the board of directors basically saying, yes, we confirm that we satisfy the relevant requirements of the SCV report. Uh, and the PRA has found a number of failings, basically, I think these mainly or possibly even entirely relate to client money accounts that HSBC operated on behalf of other financial intermediary mm -hmm. clients mm -hmm. uh, and a, a large number of them, particularly by value of the amount of cash in them. So over £112 billion worth of deposits, which is over 99% by value of these accounts that were eligible for FSCS protection. Uh, the firm had incorrectly marked them as not eligible mm -hmm. for FSCS protection. Mm -hmm. Uh, the firm had also therefore unknowingly made inaccurate attestations that its right. SCV systems were effective. Uh, and as usual, the bit that the PRA in many ways seems most annoyed about is a failure to suitably promptly notify the PRA of these issues once it began to suspect them, uh, particularly given that actually the, the whole reason the firm looked into this and began to suspect issues was because the PRA was actively asking HSBC questions about its SCV arrangements at the time. Uh, the PRA particularly call out that by the 18th of November 2019, several individuals within HSBC, including at least three senior management function holders, did know of the issue. Uh, but the PRA wow. wasn't actually formally told that this might be a more widespread issue until April 2021. So that's what over a year later. Yes. OK. Yes, that's interesting. So, OK. As, as usual, they've been bound to have breached uh, Fundamental Rule 2, which is due skill, care yeah. and diligence, 6, which is organising and controlling its affairs responsibly, various technical provisions of the depositor protection rules, and then the one that will really hurt is uh, PRA Fundamental Rule 7, which is dealing with regulators in an open and cooperative way yeah. and disclosing to the PRA anything that it thinks the PRA might be interested in, because yeah, yeah. it was fairly clear the PRA were interested in this. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, clearly, you're getting your numbers wrong, but your reports wrong. But was it 112 billion? That's that's yeah. That's it. That's, that's, that's uh, you know, it's on on the sort of middling size areas maybe. But um, but but yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, what 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 do we normally say in these cases? When isn't it? It's like the the, the cover up is worse than the uh, the crime. Yeah. Or at least the delay maybe in this case is is worse than the crime. Yeah. Okay. So that's um. So some some tried and tested kind of 
lessons in in that in that enforcement action then in terms of um in terms of what does get you into trouble with the regulator making mistakes yeah, really not really detailed up. narrative in the um final days it seems to be the usual it all gets referred up to various governance committees compliance teams etc and there's lots of internal discussions about oh should we start telling the pra but no yeah. one actually presses the button on telling the pra yeah. until way too late yeah yes interesting yes definitely definitely some some lessons albeit not new not new lessons there um uh interesting uh, of course that it, so the other the other thing that um publication wise that's come out of the pra uh that's, that's worth mentioning in the context of this fine is that they issued their final rules policy statement on on the bank of england a pra approach to enforcement so some tweaks to the rules there um the big thing and i think we did discuss this when it was being consulted on some some time ago but the big change there is um that they are introducing something called the early account scheme so that basically means if you if you if you discover you're under a, a, a investigation by the PRA or the Bank of England, uh, if you act quickly enough, hold your hand up, confess up. I think is the uh, is the technical term. Fess, fess up, um, cooperate, um, get a senior manager, assistant function holder sat at a station as to as to the accuracy of your confession. Um, then uh then a, a the process is accelerated from a, an enforcement process point of view and b you are you become eligible as you all know from the the the, the tariff for um in enforcement you know, basically if you cooperate you get 30 you can get 30 percent discount on the fine i don't know if hsbc uh, were eligible for that in that example yeah but, they, yeah they were they said it would have been yeah. 80 million they would have been fined without that <clears throat> Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So, was it by well, the early account scheme, and uh, was the phrase the fulsome cooperation will get you a fifty percent discount? Oh. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I, there's uh, this is not quite you know a US deferred prosecution agreement type 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 arrangements in terms of um, um, uh, you know slapping a lot of money down in order to to get off the hook. You, you st- you're still going through enforcement. You still get a penalty in this case, um, but uh, there is a sort of fast track. Um, It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Actually, I, I mean, the, 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 it does talk about that early account scheme being um, you both firm, firm level and individual. So an individual can can also make use of it. And I, you know, I don't know whether that that increases to some of the existing tension sometimes between the, the individual and the, the regulated firm, and they may have different different views on um, whether they want to participate and get into throwing each other under the bus potentially. Um, so, but yes, it will be it will be interesting to see. I think how often that scheme is used. I assume will it will be disclosed in final notices, etc. So, um, so and of course, if you know if it, if, it, if it's deemed to be a success by the PRA, then potentially um, we may see the same kind of arrangement for the FCA in due course. Yeah, I think that, that requirement for a senior manager attestation of the accuracy of your confession. Yeah, basically. <laughs> It is interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, that as we see all the time, the regulators don't like it when inaccurate attestations appear on anything. Yeah. And you can imagine in this context, that would be turned up to about 24 out of 10. So Yeah, yeah. The, the, I can't see a sort of long line of senior managers willingly want to sign that attestation, at least not without some serious um, uh, extra assurance being done before, beforehand. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see. Uh, it's a, so those those will coming into effect, and and we'll keep an eye out for for instances where they're actually um, put to use. Um, what else happened? Well, uh, uh, well, Nicol Rata gave a a, a speech um, late January talking about AI and 
some of the challenges it poses for for for, for regulation. So this is not a this is not a um, uh, we're definitely going to do X or Y as a regulator, but but just talking about some of the balancing act they they might they might need to to follow. And it, it's quite a good speech, I think. It, it kind of it takes a it takes a, a couple of different scenarios. So like in scenario one, you know, AI is introduced in a very controlled way. It's basically sitting by the side of a human being and and um uh supplement the service as opposed to sort of being the dominant factor so and and yeah in that in that world you know maybe there are some incremental improvements for consumers but it's not dramatic it's not drastic so a lot, a lot of the a lot of the problems of today remain i think is 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 is, is, is the you know in that scenario versus a sort of much more fuller fat implementation of ai so ai is holding your hand or holding consumers hands through every step of a financial process you potentially get benefits he talks about um you know your insurance premium suddenly becomes lower because you've got open finance open data ai is helped slash fraud and detected financial crime and, and you know helps you find the lowest premiums etc so you know that that potentially has the the greatest be benefit for consumers but the flip side is you know it, it potentially creates a world where um the owners of big data are the dominant players um maybe uh maybe much of the financial sector gets swept away by big data um you might end up actually ultimately by having less less choice and less um you know less less by way of consumer protection even so so the risks in both directions um and nickel talks about um you know fca needs to be laser focused on on outcomes and you know whatever whatever we we, we go down as a, as a society um the, the, the fca's responsibility is to consider outcomes and to regulate to ensure those outcomes don't don't become worse um indicative indicating that it well it indicates a couple of things which i think is going to be relevant to our next agenda item actually this discussion uh, indicates a, a general support for the the idea of, of open data sets um which would kind of get away from potentially a few a few huge players uh, controlling all the data um open banking um and um also in this speech i think probably more so than than any i've seen in a while uh, references financial inclusion and, and the extent to which ai could be you know could help achieve financial inclusion um which is my segue for the last thing we we're going to talk about, which was uh, the um, the Labour Party published um, its financial services um, strategy. Um, I, I guess it can only be described as in, in the run up to an expected general election. Um, it leads with uh, we will unashamedly champion our financial services sector as one of the UK's greatest assets. Uh, now, Ben, I know you, I know you've had a chance to look through this and, and we, we, we're not we're not a party political. We're not a politics board, uh, uh, podcast. <laughs> Um, but uh, given we cover financial services regulation and given the, there is a, a, a better than likely uh, chance of there being a Labour government before the end of this year, I don't think um, we're stepping too wildly out of line by speculating that that, that, that possibility. Um, it, it is probably worth just understanding what, the, what they're currently saying about regulation in financial services. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, the, the element that seems to be getting the most headline coverage so far has been uh, Rachel Reese coming out and saying that they wouldn't reintroduce the cap on bankers' bonuses. Yeah. But I think that's probably more symptomatic, actually, of the overall approach here, which is there doesn't seem to be a desire for a big upheaval. There's more interest in promoting stability and security and, you know, 
basically keeping the rules broadly consistent over a long time so <laughs> firms can do long-term planning which then obviously makes the uk in theory but yeah I, a more I, I interesting they, place to invest they've, they've got they've got a, a new word and they secure nomics secure nomics which is the idea that um that they don't keep chopping and changing policy and regulation so people as you say it, it's a predictable environment and people can 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 plan plan for the long term um I'm not sure secure economics is going to catch on as a as a. No, I think it's very likely. I think it's very likely. Um, but but as as part of that, there certainly isn't a plan to, for example, just sweep all of the Edinburgh reforms into the bin and start again. Uh, very much building on those, and in fact, in a number of areas, pushing them even further than the current government already has done. Uh, yeah, they set out a number of priorities for the financial services sectors. The ones that are probably the closest to our wheelhouse are enhancing the international competitiveness of the UK's financial services sector by pursuing a more joined up than innovation centred approach to regulation and supervision. Um, there's various elements that underpin that that I'll come back to in a moment. They do talk about reinforcing consumer protection and financial inclusion, uh, trying to do things like uh, promote longer term fixed rate mortgages. Uh, adopt a coordinated cross-sectoral approach to fraud prevention and a national financial inclusion strategy. Uh, there are a number of things that I think are already in train that are being promoted here. So, for example, regulating the buy now, pay later sector. Uh, uh, they want to lead the world in sustainable finance, embrace innovation and fintech. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of that point on sort of more joined up and innovation focused regulation, there are a few bits that are interesting. Uh, they say they want to consult with the sector to identify overlaps and gaps in regulatory mandates across bodies. Uh, so that's including PRA, FCA, CMA, pensions regulator and PSR. Um, they will establish a new regulatory innovation office, which I had a quick look at. I think that goes slightly wider than just for financial services. I think that's also capturing some of the sort of science and biotech regulators as well. Uh, so that's designed to improve accountability. Uh, they will introduce new metrics for the SCA and PRA to demonstrate progress towards the secondary objective on growth and competitiveness. Again, that's not actually new. There is a footnote for that, which I clicked on, hoping to find out more about what metrics they would suggest. And it just took me back to the HM3, HMT consultation on what those metrics should be, which is already yeah, out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they very clearly say they want to uphold the existing ring fencing regime. And then the bit that is possibly most interesting is on the consumer duty. We've got to get it into the podcast at least once. Mm. Uh, they say that this outcomes-based approach provides an opportunity to streamline some of the duplicative and excessively procedural rules in the FCA's more than 10,000-page regulatory handbook. I, I pity the poor intern who had, the print, who had to print the handbook off the website and count the pages. I know how many pages it is, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> they say the FCA is obviously planning a review of its rulebook this year, which I think we already knew about. But the, the Labour Party is saying that as part of that, if they were in government, they would actually give the FCA a specific instruction to basically look at the things that you can say, actually, that's covered off by the principles based approach in the consumer duty. We don't need all the technical rules there. We can take them out, which, which is interesting as an approach, mm. if, it, if it actually mm. materialises. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It would, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I guess this is the intention, isn't it? It's, it, it is. I don't think anything in this is is it looks profound or a significant change. It could easily be produced, dare I say it, by another political party. Um, 
and I get, but I guess that's the idea, isn't it? That if if, if they're majoring on, you know, this is financial services is is a focus area for us. It's safe in our hands. Then messages like, you know, simplifying the rule book, cutting back on regulation. My goodness, is the bonfire the regulation at last? I, I, you know, these 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 are these are all these are all messages that um, that um, they kind of fit with. Uh, you know, I guess the, the existing agenda is just. They haven't necessarily happened <laughs> so, so so far. Maybe, maybe they will under under a Labour Labour government. Um, uh, I know they. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that they're they're they're. You're, you're right. There's there's very little that I would consider new in here. That as you say, supporting buy now, pay later regulation. They're saying they would proceed with a UK Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> not what we're going to call that. Um, uh, that's the. Um, Again, going to up, up the ante um, in uh, payment services, anti-fraud activities, and so you know, banking hubs to give access to cash, etc. So, 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 I think it's it's quite quite orthodox, orthodox in a way. But I guess, I guess maybe that's that's the significant thing here, isn't it? It's um, it's not. Uh, it's it's it suggests that uh, that uh, under a Labour government, we're not going to be. Um, Recording lots of podcasts, trying to keep up with the rapid <laughs> rewriting of of everything we've uh, we we thought we knew, um, which maybe means it won't be quite such an interesting time for us. I don't know. Well, maybe. Well, certainly, I hope they don't throw too many of the detailed technical provisions in the rulebook out because uh, some of us spend quite a lot of our time helping firms interpret those. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? That uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. A lot for a lot of regulated firms. I don't think I'm. 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 Talk, we're talking. Uh, um, you know, out of turn here. A lot of regulated firms. It's quite nice to have the detailed rules. Actually, that the the you know the classic the classic challenge of looking at a principle and saying, well, what does that actually mean in practice? Is it can create grey areas. So, um, so I'm not sure well, there'll be a yeah. huge amount of appetite for too well, much. No, that that and I think. From from the regulators' perspective, I can't imagine they'll be super keen on it either, because obviously, going after a firm for a breach of a technical provision is often a lot easier than trying to get them for a mm. breach of a principle that's a bit more nebulous. And a, a rule that you can't prosecute under isn't really much of a deterrent or much of a enforcement tool, is it? Uh, no, well, it, well, and then the, the kind of range of different market interpretations that they might they might have to contend with. We, we shall we, we, we shall we shall we shall see. I guess I guess I guess the key takeaway is it's um it's it's a strategy intended to uh, I, I I presume intended to reassure rather than to um rather than to scare. Yes, I think so. Um, until then, uh, I hope everyone is is keeping well and enjoying uh, the uh, winter months, and we will speak to you soon. Brilliant. Thanks, David.